what we did, legal or not, really was ethnocide and genocide by the UN standards. Even if the numbers are much lower than what we think they should be, it was an attempt to erase people from our state. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. In 2021, the Vermont legislature issued a long overdue apology for Vermont's early 20th century state-sanctioned eugenics movement, which targeted indigenous people and other groups. According to Vermont Digger, the eugenics movement used forced sterilizations and other practices in an attempt to wipe out targeted populations who were deemed unfit to procreate, including indigenous people, French Canadians, mixed-race people, people with disabilities, and low-income families, among others. Close quote. In issuing the formal apology, Senate President Pro Tem Becca Ballant declared, quote, This is a moment for grief but it is also a moment for growth. The apology left unspoken how to undo the harm. Now, a bill in the Vermont State House proposes that Vermont establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to examine what happened and possible reparations for those who were harmed. Here to talk about this are Representative Tom Stevens. He's chair of the House Committee on General Housing and Military Affairs and a sponsor of the bill H-96. And we're joined by Virginie Ladish, a senior expert with the International Center for Transitional Justice. I began by asking Representative Stevens to explain exactly what is in the bill H-96. So H-96 is, was introduced last year at the very beginning of the biennium. And it was a short form bill. And we, we, we introduced it as a short form bill because we didn't quite have an idea, a full idea of what a Truth and Reconciliation Commission should look like. Um, we did know that coming out of, it came out of a process last year that ended up with JRH2, which was an apology for Vermont's, uh, the General Assembly's participation in public policies that led to the eugenics, um, so the, the eugenics um, policies that we instituted in the 20s and 30s in Vermont, which were very, very destructive to a great number of Vermonters uh, and some of the pain and some of the some of the outcomes are really relevant today and, and apparent today in the way that um, we treat or regard people with disabilities, um, indigenous Vermonters, and some with people of color. But you know, living here in Waterbury, you know, we've had a front seat to the state hospital and to its history if we pay attention. And so back in 2020, we started the process of working on the apology, which was a joint resolution. And we worked on that through up until the start of the pandemic. And then we picked it up in this biennium and, and, and passed it out of the house on March 31st of last year, which was the 90th anniversary of when um, Vermont passed eugenics laws. Uh, in, into into law, it was it was a happy accident in terms of commemorating the date, but not a happy accident in terms of what we were commemorating. Tom, you know we've covered uh, on the Vermont Conversation the eugenics uh, law and the the apology, which was really an extraordinary and historic moment uh, for any state to apologize for the wrong, the harm it had done um, to marginalized people. But for people who don't remember the details. What was the eugenics law in Vermont? Starting in 1912, really, where Governor Meade stood up and said that we need to return 
to our pioneer stock. People are leaving the state. Young people are leaving the state. Young Protestant people are leaving the state. And we must return to the pioneer stock is what he called it. And by that, he just meant people who um, looked like him. And so people with deformities, people with mental issues, people with um, color in their skin uh, were all targeted. And they were, um, I mean, this was the time of, of, of uh, poor farms. This was a time where the science of eugenics was just starting um, really at the end of the 19th century, but into the 20th century, where it became for some a cutting edge technology, which basically meant that if you can promote some form of um, choosing your stock, uh, however that may come about. And in Vermont, it ended up taking um, it taking a way of saying, well, it's voluntary. And I put quotes around that word, um, sterilization for, for many people. And um, it was, it took a long time for the Vermont legislature to approve even what they did approve. And it wasn't until 1931 or so where people were able to say, yes, um, we, can, we can sterilize these people, we'll just call it voluntary. And that led to programs at the Brandon Training School, the Brattleboro Retreat, Waterbury State Hospital. And this was stuff that this, I mean, I've worked in the state house now for quite some time and, and you begin to see where sometimes laws take a long time to get formulated and get accepted. And, and this is what happened with the eugenics law. And so we basically were able to take people who we didn't like and put them in an institution and perhaps um, perform surgeries on them that they didn't ask for. And that kind of surgery was focused on people, again, people of color, of people with disabilities, and with what we regard as our indigenous population now, though back then they may have been called um, basket weavers, or they may have been called you know, itinerants or gypsies, um, that, those are the names of the descriptions of people that showed up in our records. And so this was something that went on in Vermont for a short while at time. It was um, the eugenics project in the United States was an inspiration for what happened in Nazi Germany soon thereafter. And certainly the policies of eugenics went on in some way, shape or form for some years. The reason we apologized and, and, and I just need to mark that it was the General Assembly that apologized. It has not yet been the executive branch yet, though they recognize um, some of the history is really, is really kind of queasy when it comes to what happened, say, at the, at the Waterbury State Hospital. So we instituted policies that people followed, and we made it legal to do what we did. And after many years, we, we said, that's just not acceptable, and it's taken that many more years to come to a point where we felt it was necessary to apologize. We've had a real reckoning in our culture here, in, even in Vermont, where Black Lives Matter, um, women matter, people of color, their voices matter, and um, the disabled, their voices matter. And what we did, legal or not, really was um, ethnocide and genocide by the UN standards, even if the numbers are much lower than what we than what we think they should be, um, it was an attempt to erase people from our state. So and, back to the current bill and the idea of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, how would it address or right these wrongs? It starts by actually doing a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, an apology without 
follow-up legislation like this is an empty promise. It's an empty statement to say, I'm sorry, and then, but that's all I'm going to do about it. And that's all that we should do about it. And so it became clear to us while we were working on the apology that we needed to focus on a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and other things that may have come up and in, in, in people get hung up on reparations right now. And I think we're focusing on H96 because it is it, it is a process where the people who's who were affected must have an ability to voice the things that we did that have changed their course of history and their their course of lives. And, and the government in this case needs to have the accountability of hearing those voices and then making choices, hopefully in the near future to help make reparations of some kind to acknowledge the, the pain and suffering and damage that we caused these groups of people who, who no matter what you think about them, they were Vermonters. And what and, would reparations look like if that were the route this was to take? I, I think that's unclear right now, at least in terms of what's in Vermont. Um, we've heard from different stakeholder groups over the last several years where perhaps it's um, an education at the University of Vermont or one of the state colleges. Maybe, maybe there's um, money for economic development. Maybe there's money for housing. Um, there, there are lots of different possibilities, but this, this commission has to come first so that they can actually say, this is what we would like to see that we would consider fair because we are the state. We're the ones who committed these, these things. We created the world that, that this can happen in, in a truth and reconciliation commission, you know, we cannot be the judge and jury and defendant in, in listening to these, listening to these voices. And these voices are really important to shape what the reparations would be, but that would come at the end of this process. That would come as a result of this truth and reconciliation process. And so it could be um, anything ranging from what I've already said to a history center that showed the history in, in full color and was just very frank about what we were capable of doing to other Vermonters. It could be, like I said, economic investment right. in, 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 a, in, these, in these stakeholder groups. It could take many different forms. It could take non-cash forms as well. And I think it's important to keep an open mind as to what they might be. Let's bring into the conversation Virginie Ladish from the International Center for Transitional Justice. Um, Virginie, give us some context about truth commissions around the world, what they do and what they don't do. Yeah, so truth commissions have been around since um, the late 80s, early 90s, and they emerged initially in the southern cone of Latin America and in Eastern Europe in contexts where there had been a period of authoritarian regime and then there was a transition. Um, and the sense was that we had to, that, that country going through the transition needed to look at what happened in the past to understand and to make sure it doesn't happen again. So in places like Chile and Argentina, where opposition uh, members were disappeared, there were really significant questions about what happened to people's loved ones when they you know, dared oppose the government. Where had their bodies gone? What, who was responsible for that? So there, that's where we saw, you know, it wasn't possible at the initial stage of the transition to have a full-blown um, criminal investigation for multiple reasons. One, because the, the number of victims was so large, it would take years and years, generations to go through the court system. And secondly, in a context like Chile, 
Pinochet had stacked uh, the Supreme Court with people who supported his views. So there was no sense of fair trial. And then the, the third point is also sometimes a legal approach is has certain standards of evidence and statute of limitations that make it impossible to really dig deeper into these massive um, uh, crimes against human, human rights. So a truth commission emerged as what I like to say is creative problem solving. How do you get the most justice in these situations where it seems like no justice is possible? And provided a space to do some research to uncover the facts. And the early truth commissions actually didn't have public hearings. It's really the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission that revolutionized the way this work was done by bringing the public into the process, um, broadcasting all the hearings on national television, radio, news media. So it was really brought into every South African's home. And a quote that comes out of, of that experience is that really truth commissions serve to limit the realm of permissible lies. You know, it's a lot to imagine that the truth commission can establish the truth that everyone will agree upon. That's not democratic society, that's not possible. But it does, when done well, it can help clarify that we can no longer deny that these violations occurred. We can no longer deny that the government, you know, broke the, the trust between its citizens and failed to protect them. So after South Africa, pretty much every truth commission has used the public hearing because it's, it's emerged as a very powerful place for those who have been victimized or marginalized or cast aside have a chance to tell their stories, have those stories be heard and recognized officially and provide a really important form of acknowledgement. And then as Representative Stevens was saying, once those truths are heard, and then the next step is, so what do we do to make sure these violations don't happen again? And how do we repair the harm that was done and the enduring consequences of that, of that harm? I thought I'd share, you know, as a, I, as a journalist, um, covered the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, I was writing a book about the transformation of apartheid, and I was in the room for many of the hearings. There were... Um, it was very dramatic. Archbishop Tutu would sit with these purple clerical robes and his presence in this kind of regal attire kind of elevated the stories of ordinary people who were coming. And, you know, what I saw there was that these are people who did not have access to the courts. And mm -hmm. it was an opportunity for them to tell their story before an official body before, you know, a moral leader like Archbishop Tutu. And while they may not be able to get justice, the truth that they got and that they had been seeking for so long about what had happened to their loved ones, you know, when I speak about, I've spoken about this in, in classrooms in Vermont, and I've talked to the classroom to say, imagine that in this class here, one of your parents had done harm to another one of your parents, and you both knew that, but you didn't talk about it, and it was just sort of out there. And what would do you think would result from not resolving that, not knowing and telling and acknowledging the truth? Probably that the cycle continues. So in South Africa, what I saw was a chance to break that cycle of violence. So um, I didn't realize, though, Virginia, that it was the first to have public hearings, um, that the previous ones in South America were not public. So I can, I can certainly confirm that the public aspect of these, and there would be 
they would go to every town and there were a lot of people there and it was the first time that black and white and others heard from one another about the pain that had caused and at best to hear an apology from those who had perpetrated the harm um, didn't always get that apology but oftentimes um, they did because there was a stick and that is that if they didn't tell the truth they would they could be brought into court um, so with that said uh, Virginia talk about it's you know how this has been proposed in other states I understand Maryland has proposed one to look at lynching and maybe you can t share with us about other you know possible constructs here in the US yeah, so there actually, there is an active uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission looking at lynchings in Maryland. It was established in 2019. Um, they started during COVID, so they had a little delay, but they're going to resume public hearings this spring, and their mandate ends in 2024. Then there's um, the California State Task Force on Reparations. It's a little different, but similar, you know, taking testimony from, from people on what would reparations look like. Then there's this proposal in, in uh, Vermont. I think also we can look to our neighbors to the north in Canada that had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They're looking specifically at the Indian residential schools, so similar to the boarding schools that we had in the U.S., where the government and churches forcibly removed Indigenous children, put them in schools run by churches, where there was rampant physical sexual abuse in addition to cultural genocide. And so I think I was able to attend many of those um, hearings, and it was as you say, very important for people to have a chance to share their story. Also connect the dots between, you know, understanding what had happened to them, how that was part of a larger system, and that it wasn't their fault. Um, so, you know, clearing the name of people who've been victimized, that's also really important and a contribution a Truth Commission can make. I think, you you know, you mentioned the role of the, or the, the power of the South African TRC and how everyone was there. I think that's, a challenge that, that we will face in the United States, um, South Africa had a transition from minority rule to majority control, right? So it was the majority of the people were interested in what had happened. In the United States, we don't have such a dramatic transition. Um, there's more of an awakening, as Representative Stevens was saying, but it's not universal. And for many people, life goes on as usual. So how to um, as we establish these processes in the U.S., I think we need to think a little bit more carefully about how we bring not just those who've been impacted, and actually those who've been impacted need to be centered in this process. This is for them and you know, should be designed by them, but it's also important as a community to take responsibility for what had happened. So how do you get the broader citizenry to listen and pay attention to this? Um, there's not going to be the natural interest that we had in South Africa. So that's an extra challenge that we have in the United States. But so I think you mentioned Maryland, uh, California, and would Vermont be the third in the U.S.? State level commission, yes. I'm hmm. um, sorry, we have. Sorry, I'm thinking present day. There was a, a commission um, in Maine, um, also focused on the child welfare system. And then we've had other city commissions. So Greensboro, North Carolina had a, a, again, city level commission. And there are many other proposals going around right now at the city level. But in terms of state, those are the, the main ones right now. As you look at the ones that have occurred in the states, um, what do you feel like, what would you point to as 
the best or most constructive outcome that you've seen so far, or maybe just the most creative outcome. Uh, Representative Stevens was sort of sketching out what some possible outcomes could be in Vermont. What's already been done in these places? We see from the process in Maine, so very close to Vermont, is you know an increased awareness and the Truth Commission, I think, is always the start of a process. And I was speaking recently from with someone who was involved in the main process and who said, now over five, six years later, they're still getting requests of, to learn a bit more about the Truth Commission process and wanting, you know, people to come and talk about it in schools and, you know, how positive a sign that is. So a commission is not the end, but rather provides the basis upon which continual reform and acknowledgement and reparations can take place. I think that's the best outcome. Have any of these commissions um, proposed or uh, carried through on reparations? Pretty much it's standard that commissions end with a final report that analyzes what they've heard. And then also a very important part of their work is making recommendations based on what they've heard. And those recommendations range from um, different forms of acknowledgement that should be taken, institutional reform, memorialization, educational plans, and reparations. I think, you know, the track record on implementation reparations varies. Um, it's often, that's something that we've talked a lot about in the context of Vermont, how to build in some guarantees that the government has uh, a process by which to respond to the recommendations and an obligation if that's possible. Um, but we're seeing... Again, if we look to, to Canada, they had a joint truth commission and reparations process, but that was through court settlements. So it's a little bit different. But oftentimes, you know, in the follow-up, once these truths are available, then the, the work of reparations can continue. Hmm. What do you think, Virginie, Vermont, um, if we were to break some new ground here and take this a little further than has happened in other places, um, what do you think Vermont might want to accomplish, um, you know, that would be a more significant outcome? I think what's very innovative and significant about the efforts going on in Vermont is, is looking to bring different groups together under one commission and, and really trying to focus on the individual specificity of each group and the harm they suffered, but also the intersectionality. And I think moving us towards um, you know, a more unified discussion on how do we address systemic racism more broadly. And I think it's, you know, the depth of what this commission looks to cover would really be innovative. And I think inspiration for many other states across the United States. So Representative Stevens, um, just to, to close here, um, where is this bill at? What can we expect in the months ahead? We are, um, we have another week of work on it before crossover day. And crossover day is, as, as you may, as you may know, of course, is the day that we're supposed to get bills across the line that can then be considered by the Senate. And the expectation is that we'll be done by Friday, March 11th on the House version, or at least our committee's version of the bill. It has to go to appropriations. Then it has to go to the floor, gets passed there, goes to the Senate, and then it's back and forth. So we're hoping that by the end of this session, sometime in mid-May, we will have this legislation passed and funded, and uh, at least for the next year. 
and the process of choosing a selection committee, finding commissioners, staffing it up and getting it going. Um, we're looking at perhaps work starting as early as a year from now on, on the research and the interviewing and the public hearings and whatever process is determined by these, the stakeholders who will have a, an incredible voice in, in this process and working with the commissioners that get appointed. Um, the, the important thing for us, and this comes from a conversation we had with the folks in Maine many, many years ago when Maine first worked with their um, federally recognized tribes, they came, to a, they came to a conclusion of a long discussion and it had to do with land repatriation. And the indigenous crowd um, stakeholders, they, they took the end of these negotiations to be the beginning of a long conversation with the government. But the government viewed this as the end of the conversation. And so you had some people hoping that a new relationship would be built between the natives, the native people, the native population and, and the white government. And it didn't happen easily. And that's why it, one of the many reasons why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was so necessary years later was because of the breakdown in communication over those 50 years or so. And that's something that I really would like to avoid. I think Vermont should avoid viewing this process in three or four years as the end. And so we're trying to build something that really represents the beginning of a longer conversation between um, those of us who are part of the system and, and the people that we're meaning to listen to during this process. So we're, we're hoping that in a year we'll be, be up and going and in four years, there would be a report and everything right, well, with it. Representative Stevens from the Washington Chittenden House District and Virginie Ladish from the International Center for Transitional Justice. I want to thank both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank, thank you for you. having us, David. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.